360 degrees. High high, 360 degrees. High high, 306, 306, 360 degrees. High high. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Huchin, occupied Ohlone Territory, a.k.a. Berkeley. On tonight's show, we will be learning about the health and security of our California water systems and different organizations advocating to keep our water clean and healthy. We will also hear why corporations and water contractors want to keep the water flowing their way. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer. I'm excited to share what I've learned with you about California water. Keep it locked to Full Circle 94.1 KPFA. Again, welcome to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices from the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Tonight's my first show. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer, and tonight we will be learning about California water. The SF Bay Delta is California's most critical water resource. When the snowpack in the mountains is low, like this year, water policy becomes more important than ever. Tribes, development interests, agriculturalists, natural gas fracking, and environmentalists are fighting over their share of this resource. So what does a just water policy look like? To help answer that question tonight, we're first going to hear from Eric Wesselman from Friends of the River, a nonprofit that protects and restores California's rivers by influencing public policy and inspiring public action. Eric explains what's important for us to know about our rivers and the importance and effectiveness of conservation. One of the most important things for people to know about California rivers is actually that they're ours. This goes back to this ancient notion of the public trust doctrine, and that's used still today in the state of California and the United States of America, that there are resources that are held in the public trust. They're in the commons, and water is one of those public resources. So is fish and wildlife and rivers. So these are really our rivers, and it's the legal obligation of the state be good stewards and protectors of those public trust resources. And I think they're doing a better job of that in recent times, but there's 100, 200 years to make up for there. Californians knowing that, hey, these rivers, they're ours. They're part of the public trust, and it's part of the job of the state of California to protect and be stewards. And you know, we've got 13 to 1,400 reservoirs in the state already. So it's a pretty built out system. There's just not a lot of good places left. So the remaining places are really expensive to build and or have significant environmental impact. So if you look instead, though, on the sustainable side, you know, even during the drought, right, we had a mandate to reduce our water use in the urban area by 25%. Well, we did it. We saved more than a million acre feet of water during the drought through conservation alone. And that was just in 2015. So that's about a 2.3% reduction in statewide water use. And that's just conservation, but that's actually way more water than the new reservoirs that are being proposed in the state. There are about six big surface storage reservoirs being proposed and pursued in the state of California right now. 
they would cost about $10 billion to build, but they would increase our water supply for the state by less than 2%. So we did more than that just through urban water conservation during the drought. All right, so now tack on really sustainable approaches to water. So like if we were able to improve irrigation scheduling in the ag sector, so we were applying water when the plants need it and the amount that they need you know, at the right times, and we were employing that throughout the state in agriculture, that would save 3.4 million acre feet of water per year, just doing that. And that's 100% adoption and conversion. We just did 10% of that, but that's 350,000 acre feet of water right there. So improving irrigation methods and recycling treated wastewater is another two, three million acre feet. More efficient irrigation of residential landscapes, like 800,000 acre feet of water. The list goes on and on and on. So yeah, there's a lot of existing technology that could meet 25% of our current water demand. And then there's emerging new technologies that are coming online now that we could be investing more in research and development and scaling of those technologies and actual implementation or deployment of those technologies that could do even more. I, th I think the most endangered river or river system in the state of California is the San Joaquin. Now, the San Joaquin flows actually sort of south to north, and it's the second largest tributary to the San Francisco Bay Delta, which is a huge estuary on the west coast. And all these rivers flow into the San Joaquin, the Tuolumne, the Merced, the Stanislaus, and several other rivers. And if you look at these rivers are just more than half of the water that used to flow down these rivers is being diverted at least before it ever gets to the Bay Delta. And then more is diverted from the Bay Delta and through the state and federal water projects. If you think of salmon and steelhead, and even if you don't care about those fish, think of them as an indicator species or indicator of how those rivers are doing. Their populations have plummeted, plummeted to just single digit percentages of what they once were. And so the, the habitat has been destroyed and decimated, and we've really kind of just used and abused these rivers. And now we need to figure out a way to put it back together. We still need water as people for commerce and industry and residential development. You know, we need that to meet our water needs in a sustainable fashion. But how do we do that while ensuring public trust values of those rivers is restored at the same time? I think that's the big challenge ahead. Welcome back. This is Full Circle on 94.1 KPFA. That was the voice of Eric Wesselman of Friends of the River explaining how the water is actually owned by us, the people of California. And it sounds like there are many opportunities to lessen our water needs across the state. From an early age, my dad instilled in me a love and respect for the river. Growing up in California's Placer County, my favorite place was the American River. Long into my adult years, rivers have always been a place for me to connect with spirit and myself. And it's because of this, I believe we need to hold our local representatives, federal and state governments accountable and make sure they're putting the health of our rivers and waterways before profits and that our state utilizes conservation and technology to its maximum potential. To learn more about Friends of the River, check out their website at friendsoftheriver.org. We'll also have a link on our website, kpfaapprentice.org. Let's take a music break, and when we return, we'll hear a Native perspective on water and water policy.
Welcome back to Full Circle, right here on 94.1 FM KPFA. That song you just heard was Once in a Lifetime by Talking Heads. It's easy to see that water brings life, but when we have such abundance, we often forget the preciousness of water. I remember the first time I visited the Folsom Reservoir. I immediately noticed something was wrong with the lake. It didn't have the same vibrant life as the others in the area, and the environment looked degraded. Throughout my childhood, my favorite swimming hole was threatened by the proposed Auburn Dam, and now canceled Deep Canyon Dam, which would have flooded expansive foothill canyons. These early experiences and dozens since have always inspired me to be an advocate for our natural world, and especially our life-giving water resources. But let's not forget that within the water, there is life, and another precious resource, salmon. The salmon is not only a vital resource, but is also an indicator of a river's health. If a river ecosystem is not functioning properly, it will reflect in the salmon population. I spoke with Dr. Katja Rizling-Baldi, Department Chair of Native American Studies at Humboldt State University. Katja is a member of the Hoopa Tribe and shares the importance of salmon and healthy rivers for indigenous peoples of Northern California. I grew up in Northern California and in Humboldt County, where my tribes are actually from. So I'm Hoopa, Yurik, and Karuk, which are all three of the largest tribes in Northern California. I'm enrolled in the Hoopa Valley tribe, and uh, that's where my parents live. And I grew up out what they call Outtown, which is like uh, not too far away from the reservation, but kind of in where the what we call the cities. I don't think anybody who actually lives in a city would call it a city, but it's where like the Target and the Costco is. And I got to grow up a lot with the indigenous peoples in this region and being tied to all of the three tribes has, you know, been an important part of what I do because I was able to practice ceremony in different parts of this area and learn about basketry and learn about like gathering materials and have family and community connections in multiple places. I think if you meet any of us from up here, a lot of us are able to say that we are from multiple of the tribes in the region. The federal government only lets us choose one to be enrolled in, but we all have family who are in these multiple tribes all throughout California, really intermarried for a really long time. And we were all connected to each other because of our lands. So I feel really fortunate to have grown up in this area and then been able to return to work here at Humboldt State because I had always wanted to come home and be able to make a difference in my own communities. Can you share a little bit about Native American history and culture regarding rivers and bodies of water? Any stories that you can share with our listeners? 
we say that when the world began, there were people, they, they, we call them the first people, the Kehenai, and they were here. And they made the world for us and they did all the things and they figured out what we needed to do so that we would have a safe and happy and healthy and balanced world. And then they realized that it was coming into the time of people. And so they decided that they were going to leave so that people could now be here. And uh, when they left, they went into the things around us. So we say they went into the rocks and they went into the trees and they went into the animals and they went into the water. So for us, what that does is it embodies the world with spirit, with the idea that the things that had cared for the world before us are now here and we have to care for them. So Vine Deloria Jr., who's a fantastic uh, indigenous scholar, talks about how now Western culture has a sort of think of the world as a world of rights. Like, what's my right? What is it my right to do? But that indigenous philosophies ask you to think about the world as a world of responsibilities. Like, what am I responsible for and what am I responsible to? Because we believe that these things are embodied with spirit. So we don't have necessarily like control over it. We're trying to work in relationship with it because we have to care for the water as much as the water cares for us. One thing about this area that's really important for us is we are tribal peoples who are on our aboriginal territories. And a lot of tribal peoples throughout the United States were removed and sometimes, you know, very far away from where their Aboriginal territories are. And for us, we've always been here. We've been here since time began. So our connection to the land and the water and the mountains and the trees and everything is very, very deep and meaningful to how we understand our culture and our history. So we're really able to have like a really long knowledge of this place. And I think that that connection comes through like our own families and the ways that we do things. And so I can point out places where like my great, great, great grandmother is from and the things that we have always done there. And in Hoopa, we live in this beautiful valley and we have this river that runs to the center of it, our river, the Trinity River. And it was always a place that I could feel reconnected. You were saying that your tribe, Hoopa, is connected with the Trinity River? Are you also connected with other rivers up north? What we learned growing up is all the things are connected, and rivers especially. So if you think about a river system, what we're told as uh, young people is like the rivers are the veins. They're the arteries of the spaces we inhabit, of the lands that we are responsible for. And so when you think about a vein or an artery system, those things all work together, even though you might only think of one part of it they all need each other. So rivers are the same way. They're connected. I mean, it's very obvious if you look at watersheds, how interconnected they are. So the Trinity River specifically runs through the Hoopa Valley, but that runs into the Klamath River, which then runs into the ocean. And so you've got all these interconnected systems. And I think when you start talking about like tributaries, which water feeds other water, the Trinity River is a really significant tributary to the Klamath River. And so anything that is going to affect the Trinity River is going to affect the Klamath River. And things that affect the Klamath River are going to affect the Trinity River. And we think about ourselves that way, as interconnected. And so I always say there was reasons why, you know, you don't go in and build like a permanent dam in your artery. You would cause massive havoc in somebody's body if you dammed up one of their arteries and it, I think it's the same way of thinking, this kind of interconnectedness of what life looks like on this planet and the way that everything works together. 
And so when you make a political policy, you don't think about it just affecting yourself and your tribe. You think about what am I doing in responsibility to everything on this earth? And another thing about our region that's really interesting, and I know that other tribes do this too, is we define ourselves by water. And so our directions are not the same. So, you know, we, we understand directions now as like north, south, east, west. But in Hoopa, our directions are like upriver, downriver, toward the river and from the river. And so like, this is how we view our whole world. And what I have said in other spaces is like, we are water view people. So we're not worldview, we're water view. Like we think about ourselves in relationship to the water that runs through our lands. And this gives us a different way of thinking about water than just as being like a resource that we're supposed to use or a right that we're supposed to have, but instead the rights of the water itself to be able to run through this earth and participate in this ecosystem that has been created to help care for us so that we can live here for all time. What's going on today for tribes and communities along the rivers and waterways in your area? Our area is constantly, unfortunately, defined right now by the seizure of water and what is happening with the health of the rivers. And I think that water is a really important thing to learn about. And so if you don't know what's going on in your state, your county, your area that you live in with water, you should really look into the ways in which I think capitalism affects how people understand and approach water. And in our area, because we are fortunate enough, we always had water. What this means usually is that our water is seized and taken to other parts of California so that we can help to sort of feed capitalism and the development of other areas and also to sort of sustain people in other areas. In our region, our water is primarily taken into the Central Valley. It's used for farming and to sort of be able to upkeep like kind of the agricultural businesses that are happening in California, which are a significant part of how we view California. California has this reputation of feeding the world and being the place where you can grow things all year round. But what you need if you're going to grow something all year round is water. And so that water doesn't come from the Central Valley. In fact, there was, I mean, before there was, there actually was a lot of water in the Central Valley, but all of that got used up by the businesses that were there that kept getting bigger and bigger without thinking about the long-term impacts of what it would mean to use water up. What that means for us in this region is that during certain months, especially over the summer months, depending on what has happened with drought and with snowfall and things throughout the year, or if they're seizing more water, or if they're taking more because they're trying to create some type of new project, what it means is that our rivers are usually sick in this region, and we get algae blooms, which are toxic. And I always find it really interesting that when they make the announcements that the river is sick and there's toxic algae blooms that are growing, they always say, don't swim in it, but definitely don't let your pets drink it because it will kill your pets. But they don't really talk about, well, if it's going to kill our pets, like it can't be good for us either, right? But they just say, don't go swimming. And so we have certain times of the year where we can be exposed to this toxic algae if we go into our own waters. I don't really remember there being a time someone would say, you can't go because you know, the river is sick right now and you can't go into it. I don't remember that. I do remember stories that were told to me by my grandparents about how healthy the river used to be. And they would tell these stories about salmon. And I mean, you can ask like any of the elders in Hoopa and they'll be like, I remember that during the salmon runs, 
It was so thick with salmon. It was so silver with salmon that you could walk on the backs of them from one side of the river to the other. There was such an abundance. And now we would never have a salmon run that's like that. So it really has affected our salmon a lot. And this is really concerning to us because salmon truly reflect the health of not only the community, but a river system, an ecosystem, and I would argue a climate system. If your salmon aren't healthy, then everything is about to fall apart because there are so many things that rely on the salmon being healthy. And I think it's one reason why, especially indigenous peoples in our region, but other regions that have salmon as part of their water system, were so clear in our stories and in the things that we did, that salmon was a really important species, that we needed to honor it, that we have to consider our responsibility to salmon, that we think of salmon as our relatives. When you look scientifically, they talk about salmon as a keystone species that's going to determine the health of the environment. And we were doing the same thing. We were saying, this is really important. And so now many of our salmon are sick. We do not get the same size salmon runs that we used to. In fact, they're anticipating for this year really small runs that we're choosing in several of our tribes not to fish because we're saying if we did, we could affect the species so much toward extinction of salmon, and that is unacceptable. So we are constantly thinking about this. How would the Delta Tunnel project that's being proposed affect all that? People always are telling me like, well, we lose too much water to the ocean and that's part of the problem. And I think, no, the ocean like needs water. We don't even know the effects of if we took all the water that was supposed to be running into the ocean, what that's going to do to an ecosystem. So we need to think very long term with any project that we're trying to talk about, especially when it comes to changing and damming up rivers, because all those things work together. And I think the really amazing thing about indigenous knowledge is and stories and what they call traditional ecological knowledge and indigenous sciences is that our knowledge about this area, because again, we're in our Aboriginal territory, is like minimum 10,000 years old. Like we've been working scientifically to look at the behaviors of fish and the ways that water works and like what an ecosystem is supposed to function like. We have all of these stories about what species interact with other species and how you understand how the world is, comes together that help us to give very long-term views of what it looks like to make projects like this. And we have the opportunity now to think about, do we want to center capitalism and economy in all of the decisions that we make? Because we see the effects of, if you take water from up here and you put it in a different place, it is going to affect all of the things that need water in the other region. And I don't think that we can sacrifice salmon for almonds, for instance, right, which is one big water crop that we grow in California, because we have to think about how these things all work together. I think that when you're when you start talking about the California water fix or the Delta Tunnel project, like those are also going to be very problematic projects that continue with this idea that you can take a bunch of water from us in this region and put it someplace else or or funnel it somewhere else, and that that's going to somehow solve the problem. When the real problem is that we're just not living in relationship and responsibility with each other, we have to have a kind of discussion about what it means that we're being taught that this is somehow a personal responsibility when there are still corporations and companies that are allowed to come in and grow water intensive crops. And in fact, there were some companies that 
were planting water intensive crops during the drought. And when you start talking to people about that, what you realize is like most people don't know where their water comes from or like who determines how it's being used or even what's happening in the different regions around water. And if we want to have an industry argument, actually supporting the salmon industry would make us more money in California than these other industries. But the salmon industry, the people in this region don't have as much of a hold on lobbying as I think other groups. What's important about Hoopa is like we we fought a war to keep our valley. They wanted to remove us. In the 1800s, we signed a treaty and our big main thing in the treaty was like, we want to stay in our valley. We knew that that was going to be the place that sustained us and fed us and made sure that we could remain Hoopa people. And the 1800s, they decided not to ratify our treaties. And so they wanted to remove us. And we fought a war, a three-year-long war against soldiers and agencies to say that we would not be removed. And part of it was because we knew that the connection to the land was so important and the connection to the space. But the other part was we felt so responsible to that place so responsible that our ceremonies are about understanding connection to that place and building that connection for our young people. Because we want to, we say like, if you can feel responsible here, then you'll do what needs to be done to make sure that these things are here for until the end of time. Indigenous peoples think about water as something that everybody needs. So it's something that we all need to work to protect what we say is water is life. We do these ceremonies that help to empower young people. And in our region, we have a women's coming of age ceremony that we have been working really hard for the last uh, years to bring back. And part of what the girl has to do in the ceremony is just to connect with the river. And she goes into it and she says prayers and she's able to go to these different spaces along the river. And it really connects her to her space so that she knows where she's from but it also makes her feel very responsible to the river. And I know that because when we were having a really big possibility that our river was going to be very sick one year, and this was a few years after in our region, we experienced the fish kill along the Klamath River because of sort of the lack of water and what was happening with seizure of water and dams and then drought. It was this perfect storm and we lost hundreds of thousands of fish along the river who just died. And to see that, to see what that looked like, to watch as elders stood on the shores and cried because they were looking at these dead fish all along the way. That's something that I think stuck with so many of us because that was a moment of thinking like, what what will happen to us now? Because this huge fish kill happened and it didn't mean that anybody was like, oh, we definitely need to give them more water because look what happened. So a few years after that, they had the same, the exact same things were happening to set up a fish kill. What we did was got more scientists, we've got more people monitoring, we've got more fisheries people, and their job was to make sure that the river was healthy enough for the fish. And we were noticing because of all this extra monitoring that we were doing that there was a likely possibility of another fish kill. So we went to the federal government and we were saying, give us more water to prevent a fish kill. We've done all the scientific work to show you. And the Bureau of Land Management at the time said to us, find a dead fish and then we'll talk to you about it, was sort of their answer. And us pointing out like, well, if we find a dead fish, that means they're already starting to die, which means if you release the water, it takes a number of days for it to get to us. So it's not going to prevent this. Didn't matter. They were like, we're not going to do anything. And you know, your science is a hypothesis. And 
So we all started walking along the river looking for dead fish because we needed to find something. But at the same time, the Hoopa tribe organized a protest. And actually, we went up to the Lewiston Dam, which is where they hold the water from the Trinity River. They did singing and dancing, and they tried to call attention to the fact that we're people and we're trying to protect our area. We're trying to protect our fish. And the young girls who had been part of this ceremony, they went and they sang on top of the dam in like 100 degree weather. They, they came out and they were like, we are connected to the water. This is part of our ceremony. And what they pointed out to the federal government leaders was, if the river's sick and we have a fish kill and algae blooms, we can't do this ceremony. And this ceremony is about teaching our young people to be strong with our health and wellness. This is the thing that empowers our next generation. And you are saying to us that we are not important. You are saying we don't need to connect in this way, but this is what we do. So they were there all day. And that was because they have felt this great connection to this area. So I think we went through this fish kill and it empowered us to say we have to do something. And then we went through this period of time when they didn't want to give us water. And we said, then we have to do something. And after all that, they made a decision to release water that year because of the work that we had done. So we know that our work is never done to protect our fish and our waters and our lands, but we do it not just for us, we do it for everybody. We want everybody to be able to experience a healthy world like that. I just wanted to ask about your vision for a resilient California. We're thinking about decolonization as a call to action and to think about what you can truly do to make an impact and difference. And for us, at the heart of that is one, land return. This idea that all land, especially you know in these various regions, it's stolen indigenous land. Treaties have been broken. So, so land right now, it should be returned to indigenous peoples. But what we're asking people is to envision a world where what if we did return land? What if we did return space? And then I start thinking like, how do we envision a world without dams? Because there was a world before dams. The work you do now is to really say, yes, we can. We can take down dams. To make it a statement that you make, that you don't feel like apologetic for, that you say out loud. Because what we say in indigenous communities is like, nothing can become until you story it into being. You have to say it out loud. Welcome back to Full Circle. This is KPFA Pacifica Radio Network. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer. I'm talking about California water this evening. You just heard my interview with Dr. Katja Rizling-Baldi. You can check out what she's up to at KatjaRizlingBaldi.com and CaliforniaSalmon.org. We always have links to organizations after the show at KPFAApprentice.org. Let's take another music break. This is Full Circle on KPFA. We'll be right back. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, brothers, let's go down. Let's 
just go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown, good Lord, show me the way. Oh, fathers, let's go down, let's go Welcome back. This is Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM and kpfa.org. I'm Natalie Kilmer, your host tonight. That was Down to the River to Pray by Allison Krauss. And tonight we have been talking about California water. Through the process of interviewing for this story, I'm reminded that now more than ever, we need to take time to listen to the land, nature, our experts and elders and examine what's really important. For someone like me living in Oakland or anywhere in the Bay, it's important to know that we're all part of the larger Delta watershed. Just like the salmon migration span this watershed, the SF Bay Delta watershed starts in the Cascade and Sierra Nevada mountains, flowing through the tributaries that feed the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers, flowing through the Bay Delta and out through the Golden Gate to the ocean. The SF Bay Delta is California's most critical waterway supplying water to two-thirds of Californians. The Delta encompasses the area from Sacramento in the north to Stockton and Tracy in the south and to Benicia and Martinez in the west. Currently, water is diverted south to two aqueducts being pumped from a pair of pumping stations in Byron, California. From there, the water flows south along I-5. It's distributed to large agriculture projects in the Central Valley and delivered further south for drinking in places like Los Angeles. In addition to this, California Governor Gavin Newsom, backed by major water interests, are proposing the Delta Tunnel Project, a 35-mile tunnel that would nab cleaner, fresher water further north of the Delta. This could have major impacts on the struggling Delta estuary. To learn more about what's proposed and what's going on currently in the Delta, I spoke with Barbara Barragan-Padilla of Restore the Delta. Restore the Delta's mission is to ensure the health of the San Francisco Bay Delta estuary and Delta communities. Barbara starts by describing the Delta system and the populations along the Delta that are dependent on and affected by changes in Delta flows, including a disaster such as flooding. The Bay Delta estuary is a connected water body with the freshwater part of the estuary being 
in the delta, gradually becoming saltier as you move towards the bay. People forget that there are 4 million people that live in the five delta counties. 500,000 people live in the interior delta. Those are the rural towns in interior cities. And there are an, an additional million people or so who live in what they call the secondary zone. Those are urban areas that are part of the legal delta that actually surround the interior delta. And, and this is an important part of the story because if there were emergencies to happen in the delta, we would experience 80% of the economic loss for any problems in the state and 100% of loss of life. Wow. What are some of the communities we might not be thinking of? Well, if we start from the north, West Sacramento, there are towns, Clarksburg, Cortland, Walnut Grove, Isleton, Hood, Rio Vista. You head west, you're looking at Brentwood, Antioch, parts of Oakley that are waterfront. Moving south, you're looking at the town of Byron, which is near Clifton Court, Forbay. But then on the east side, moving from north to south, you have direct impacts that could hurt about 40% of Stockton. Our downtown, a good chunk of our community is in the legal delta. Then further south, going towards Lathrop, Manteca, and Tracy, you have a large part of our county, which is 800,000 people, that actually lives in the legal secondary zone of the delta. So when you're saying if... Uh disaster happen? You mean like a flood or what do you mean? The greatest threat to the Delta has been and always will be flood threat. And that's before you take into account the impacts from climate change. It makes sense. You live near water. It's an ongoing process to maintain and protect river communities from flood. The earthquake threat has always been really over-exaggerated. The nearest major active fault line is 40 miles west of the Delta our levees held up fine during the Napa earthquake. They've done testing out at the islands, tested by U.S. Geological Service and by seismic experts from UCLA. The, the biggest threat always has been flooding. Then you put in climate change. You look at the state's fourth climate change assessment, and it's not just sea level rise. It's sea level rise. It's inundation down the rivers, particularly the San Joaquin River, and it's storm surge that would come through the Pacific. And one of the most dangerous flood points in California is in South Stockton. It is a community right now that has some of the weakest levees that need updating. It's a large environmental justice community. And the prediction is that there's going to be seven, 10 feet of overtopping with these climate change conditions if we don't start making investments in flood protection. And the areas I'm talking about aren't new developments. The areas I'm talking about were places that were built 40, 50, 60 years ago before anyone in California was doing any type of analysis. And in fact, one of our biggest water threats in the Delta is the creation of harmful algal blooms, because I kind of see that as the pandemic of water in California. What is going on with algal blooms? I've been hearing about Harmful it. Harmful algal blooms, not just happening in the Delta, but we have a lot of them in the Delta. Then there are some groups up north, California tribes on our rivers around the Klamath area, and also in Clear Lake that are just doing great jobs monitoring 
and tracking and figuring out the science of how this happens locally. So we're actually looking to them for leadership with their tribal governments because they're way ahead and we're behind in the Delta and we're just starting to catch up. Habs are harmful algal blooms. I'm going to call them habs from here out are created by warm water conditions, still water, brightness and light, nitrate pollution. They are made worse by spraying of certain chemicals which we've used in the Delta historically to deal with some invasive species. So we have this perfect condition on the San Joaquin River when flows are cut around May and June and the water warms up and we're dealing with pollution from nitrates coming downstream, a bit of port operations, problems that we have had with discharge. The algal blooms really start in the Stockton area. They come out the shipping channel and they kind of skip across the Delta all the way to Discovery Bay. Of course, conditions there with lack of water circulation cause the same problem. But you see this like daisy chain, and every year it's been getting worse. Harmful algal blooms don't necessarily dissipate. Uh, when we get more flow and it's colder, they sink, they become what they call basically mats. And when conditions are bad in the summer, they raise up and become visible again. And HABs are toxic. They cause liver damage and they can cause death in preschoolers. There are stories documented in the South Delta where these HABs pop up of dogs going in the water and coming out and dying. Impacts are horrible on wildlife. You can't eat fish or shellfish that have been contaminated by it. So it really is a problem on many levels. It's a problem for subsistence fishers. It's a problem for recreation. You can't irrigate with the water. So it's a horrible condition for the family farms in the Delta. It could contaminate drinking water supplies. We really need to get a handle on it. We've seen it get worse year after year. And with climate change, we expect it becoming worse during the summer months. And then if you were to throw in tunnel operations that would take the freshwater flow out of the south and west ends of the Delta, I think we're looking at a real recipe for disaster. This makes me wonder how the controls work and if you can tell us a little bit about how they do change the we flows. We are convinced and we know that the flows are impacting the HABs. There have been a number of papers released exactly on that topic in the last couple of months. However, that isn't what controls how our pumping systems are regulated. ARP systems are supposed to be regulated by species protection under the biological opinions. But of course now the Trump executive order has put rules in that have changed the pumping conditions on the federal water project. And the state water contractors are suing the state because they want the same easy, relaxed conditions created by the Trump administration. I'm just starting to get a handle on what our daily pumping numbers are looking like now. And I'm really concerned because I'm hearing anecdotally about more reverse flows, more problems on water quality conditions in the South Delta. South Delta Water Agency has put out its own work on its website talking about that. So the health of the fish is tied to the health of the people in the Delta and the health of agriculture. There is no separation. So whenever the Endangered Species Act is gutted, and of course we do care about salmon and sturgeon and smelt, don't get me wrong, it's the largest estuary on the west coast of the Americas, we care about it for fishermen, we care about it for nature itself and its intrinsic value, 
We care about it for Northern California tribes whose cultures are tied to the health of salmon runs. And we worry about it for our own local economy. It also goes beyond that for us. When you open up those pumps, you're not only endangering the fish, you are endangering the quality of water for all its beneficial uses and ultimately the people of the Delta. So when you say that the state and then the federal, are those two different? Yes, there are two pumping systems. There's the Jones plant and the Banks pumping plants. One's for the state water project. One is for the federal water project tied to the existing configuration near Byron, which is just outside of Tracy. That's why we have two aqueducts when you drive down the I-5. One is for the Central Valley Project. One is for the State Water Project. Traditionally in the past, 50-60% of Delta flow has been diverted regularly from the Delta starting from June forward. But they've loosened restrictions to take more water out now in the spring months when the Delta smelt are near the pumps. And so... Where we're at right now today, I can't give you a snapshot of. We are looking at putting together a better tracking system. Is most of this water going to farms or is it going to residents that are running out of water in dry counties? Do you know the breakdown? Prior to the big drought of the last decade, two-thirds of the water went for agriculture with one-third going to Southern California. Of the two-thirds that went to the agriculture areas in the San Joaquin Valley, very little of it went for drinking water uses. And where it did, the Westlands Water District actually price gouged the small farms that had any mechanisms or way of actually connecting to that drinking water system. During the drought, we saw the split not be as great as that two-thirds, one-third ratio, It seemed to us then that we were sending maybe 50 to 60% of the water to actual urban areas because there were declines in agricultural water that was shared. The second part of this is that with the release, however, and the changes in the federal pumping restrictions, what we are interested in investigating now is how much water is actually going to the San Joaquin Valley farmers. The Westlands Water District in particular, which is the largest irrigation unit in the United States, is the last in line in terms of water rights, but with this contract that was given to them by the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation and the change in pumping, they are now being treated like the priority. We in the Delta find that terribly problematic. We have never believed you can fully stop exports from the Delta. It would be an impossibility for how water is needed and where it goes in California, but we have always argued that you have to take a sustainable amount from the Delta. You have to share it where it makes the most economic sense. And in our minds, that would be the great economic engine of Southern California. It doesn't make sense to be giving more and more water to unsustainable agriculture on the west side of the San Joaquin Valley, which only contributes about 2% total to the state's GDP. But the scenario we find ourselves in right now is those are exactly the people who are gaining the upper hand with the Trump administration. Currently, there's the proposed tunnel, or it was proposed tunnels. What's the status of the tunnel project? Well, we just finished the comment period for the notice of preparation. What that technically means is that they released the kind of what they call scoping or the idea of the project and they look for feedback from the public. And this is always one of the more difficult 
periods and ways to address the project because you get so few details. The difference this time is that the single tunnel, they have two alignments for it. One alignment is the alignment that was described during California water fix. That project is officially over and done with. All the permitting has been pulled. The second permitting process moves the tunnel much closer to large urban communities in the Delta. They're doing that to create access to reduce construction costs because they'd have greater access to the port of Stockton and to trains, eliminate maybe some truck traffic. However, we have great pause about all of this because San Joaquin County and Stockton has the fourth highest rate of asthma, and that means the construction impacts are going to be moved closer to urban areas with large environmental justice populations. You're looking at a project that will have hundreds of trucks on the road every day, increased truck traffic, increased barge traffic, and a potential for greater dust in the air. Peat soils not only contain particulate matter 2.5, which is a major pollutant in the area, but they also have microbes in them. And we have a problem with some chromium-6 in our soils in the Delta that has come downstream over the years to us. So we're really concerned about the construction and pollution impacts. We also see during the construction period and then the operation of the tunnel later on, real potential for the proliferation of more harmful algal blooms as more and more water is removed from the system. And then our biggest disappointment is that the tunnel itself does nothing to protect the 4 million people here who are still going to be under the threat of flooding from climate change. The state has been slow to move and address those issues. They push and push for the tunnel, but the things that we yell about that are happening on the ground, like HABs, about water quality, about the flood threat, they move very slowly on reacting to, and they're still going to have to solve all those problems, whether they build the tunnel or not. Who really wants the tunnel? Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, the Kern County Water Agency. It's the state water contractors who continue to push for it. There's an excellent editorial by the LA Times that really talks about how Southern California should be water recycling first, and they've taken too long to get that job done, and we couldn't agree more. There are so many ways to lessen dependence on the Delta that a tunnel would not be needed when we could really just adequately reconstruct our existing system at Clifton Court Forbay for pumping. And I will say this too, the the federal contractors in Westland's Water District, they pulled out of the project a couple of years ago. However, I think that it was a strategy to get what they want in terms of water deliveries being guaranteed. And once they can clear up financial hurdles and get water guarantees, I would assume that they will come back and buy their way into the project. So why are we pushing for the tunnels versus the aqueduct? Is the aqueduct not doing its job or is it just for more water? And would the aqueduct be shut down when the tunnel gets going? No, the water from the tunnel would go into the aqueducts. And why are they pushing for the tunnel? They keep arguing that you're going to need it for sea level rise to protect water supply. Our problem with that argument is if you follow that logic, that means that you're not going to protect the Bay Area or the Delta from flooding. So are we saying that we're abandoning the Bay Area and the Delta with climate change? 
Metropolitan Water District has always wanted the tunnel because they've wanted better water quality from the Sacramento River side for the way they blend and use water rather than perfecting recycling at their end. They're also under stress because they're having challenges with getting water with drought conditions on the Colorado River side. The whole problem with the Zeitgeist at Metropolitan Water District is that the whole district was formed to move water from other places to Los Angeles. And that is a flawed strategy that will no longer work with climate change. We have to put water resilient programs into our urban areas at the highest scale because there's going to be less and less water to share. Also, climate change modeling shows us that there's going to be greater rains, which we saw this last year, uh, very often in Southern California than there will be in the watersheds of the Delta. So they would not necessarily get more water with the tunnels. They would just get higher water quality. That is their argument. We believe that they will take more water because they're always working through the voluntary agreement process to buy water from people who own water rights in the Sacramento Valley. Also, if you're going to build a tunnel that's going to cost in total with inflation, bond debt, and cost overruns in time, about $33 billion, $40 billion, there's no way you're going to operate that tunnel that it's shut off during the dry years. It will run constantly and continuously, and it will dewater our wild and scenic rivers up through Northern California because they all flow into the Sacramento River. Ultimately, they will take more water, they won't control themselves, and then it will run out just like we've seen happen over decades on the Colorado River side. That's why it's such a bad strategy. Do you see any other more ecologically sound visions of what California's water future could look like? We believe that in order to get California healthy for the water future, we have to make major investments in flood control. And that's not just the levees, but that is the recreation of floodplains upstream on our rivers because they serve two purposes. They restore groundwater but they also provide a way to store water for releases into rivers when you need it during dry periods. There has to be riparian restoration in our Sierra watershed so that we have wetlands up in the Sierra that help create water production as well. We believe in large-scale urban water projects to reclaim, restore, and reuse and be efficient with water in urban areas. We need to do a lot of rainwater capture along the coast where we're going to see more frequent heavy rains. We believe that large tracts of industrial agriculture on the drainage-impaired lands in the San Joaquin Valley from Westlands Water District all the way down to Kern County really need to be retired from production, because if we take the bad lands out that cause the pollution and that can't use water efficiently, we can keep more water in production for agricultural areas that should be maintained and kept healthier. Welcome back to Full Circle. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer, and you just heard my interview with Barbara from Restore the Delta. We talked about the current lax regulations set by the Trump administration that threaten our river health, endangered species protections, and local communities. To learn more about Restore the Delta, check them out at restorethedelta.org. We will have a link on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show. 
The more I learn about water systems in California, I realize that our water laws, regulations, and conveyance are extremely complex. It's important for us to learn where our water comes from and at what cost. Because in California, water is power. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thanks to all the folks I interviewed and to Frank, Miss M, Darlene, Christina, my husband, Carl. Check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org, where we will have links to all the organizations and resources we talked about. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. I've been your host tonight. I'm Natalie Kilmer. Please, everyone, protect your health and your humanity. Thanks for listening. And stay tuned for La Onda Baita coming up next. We are currently accepting applications for the apprenticeship program. Please check out kpfaapprentice.org for more information.